Good morning, church. Good to see our first wintry morning feel we've had, truly. Uh, we, um, we live in a beautiful state, don't we? As Ryan, as Ryan said on the way in, the beautiful sunrise we saw, and some of the most beautiful houses and scenic overlooks in our area are on the Kenai Bluffs. However, we know that steady erosion threatens these delightful domiciles. That may be some of you here today. I'm not here to bluff shame. That's not my intention. But the Army estimates um, that the, the Army Corps estimates that the bluffs in our area are eroding at about three feet per year in, in some areas, and that over the next 50 years at this rate, we would lose over $22 million in homes and in lands and in recreational opportunities. Paul Ostrander, city, uh, Kenai uh, City Manager and Peninsula Grace's own, and the Army Corps have gotten together to propose this mile-long rock berm, uh, these anchor rocks that would help um, erosion, especially in the, the Old Town area. They estimate that over 15 years and millions of dollars would have to be spent uh, to be able to create a more stable slope. So the moral of the story is this. Um, you can build a, a beautiful house with a, with a beautiful overlook, right? You can sit there like that couple from the, the pill com- commercials, right? But the, the reality is what matters more than the house that you built is the foundation that you've built the house on. And this is exactly what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7. He talks about building a house on the right foundation. He, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it has been founded on the rock, the foundation that it had. Now, if you grew up in church, you, you know the song, right? I mean, and you knew I was going there. Uh, sing it with me. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And what the rains come down and the floods come up and the house on the rock stood firm. Good. Good. I see some good Christians out there that know that song. That's awesome. What is the lesson that he's teaching here? He says, hear and obey, right? This takes us, he says, he who hears my words and does them. This takes us back to last week's Shema, the word that meant hearing and obeying God's voice. And and last week we saw Solomon make the fantastic choice that Adam and Eve had failed to make in the garden. And instead of leaning on his own understanding, he asks God for wisdom. In 1 Kings 3, we saw that he, his request to the Lord was to hear and obey the true king. He asks for God's ability to rule. And at first glance, Solomon is a very wise man who built his house on the rock. In fact, he's going to build God's house, the temple, on this kind of a foundation. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 4, we're presented with Solomon as the new Adam. He's Adam 2.0. He's the, uh, the better version of Adam, like the new iPhones. He's, he's, like, he's like Adam with the three cameras, right? He's going to be an awesome Adam. And in everything that Adam could not have been, he's awesome and rain, at ruling and reigning, we see in chapter 4. He's, his, the nation is totally at peace, at rest from their enemies that God had promised. He's the wisest man who's ever lived. He's a philosopher and a poet. Got a right brain, left brain thing going on. The whole package. He's a botanist and a a zoologist like Adam. He knows the animals. He understands the plants. And at the end of this chapter, it culminates by saying, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Remember, Israel is supposed to be this nation, this light shining to the rest of the world. And we're seeing this happen. Here's Solomon. 
being the, the Adam that Adam never was. And then in 1 Kings chapter 5 through 10, Solomon builds this, this temple. Just as God had promised that he would. It's God's house where God's glory dwells. And the temple is this beautiful picture of Eden, the place where God and man would come together again. He dedicates it to the Lord. There's this beautiful long prayer where he calls all the people of Israel together to to be faithful to the Lord, to hear his word and obey it. And in chapter 10, it it says that he is the wise and wealthy and world-renowned king of Israel. And what a picture. The new and better Adam ruling and reigning in the world. Israel's at peace, a light shining to the nations. And the of Israel... Are like, are like these guys at the NBA game. They are high-fiving each other and celebrating. They're up in the jumbo trot and saying, we did it, you guys. We got the king. They're celebrating. He's finally here. There's a bunch of awkward dabbing going on there. All of a sudden, though, you turn to chapter 11. And Solomon has a thousand wives. And it says that they turned his heart away from the Lord. Now, wait, wait a second. What just happened? What happens in that little white space between chapter 10 and chapter 11? How did Solomon fall so quickly? He goes to bed one night, Billy Graham, and he wakes up the next Hugh Hefner. Where is the difference? Some of the younger people are like, I don't know who that is. That's that's good. Keep following Jesus. Um, We are given this spectacular tour of Solomon's house. Of, of the kingdom that he had built with wealth and abundance and wisdom. There's a house on a rock, if you've ever seen one. But upon closer inspection, we're going to start to see these cracks that had formed in the foundation. And the author is whispering to us that underneath all of that splendor, the wisest man, even the wisest man who ever lived, is still a fool building on the sand. And notice what it says here in verse 4. When Solomon was old. This didn't happen overnight. Life is a long obedience in the same direction. And remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7. He, he, he says after the rock song, part of the song, everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And when the rain comes and the flood comes and the winds blow against that house, it fell and great was the fall of it. And the house on the sand went It's a morbid song. The foolish king, the foolish king builds his house on the sand. Chapter 11 is going to be the culmination of of the house going splat, but we're going to see a lot of OSHA warnings along along the way. Let's look at some of these cracks in the foundation. In order to do that, we're going to inspect with the flashlight of of God's word. I'm really running with this building analogy. In in the covenant God made with with Israel, we call it the Mosaic Law. In, In Deuteronomy chapter 17, he gives these laws concerning a king, which is cool to see here that God called their shot. Like he knew you're going to ask for a king. It's not an if, but when. God's always in control. He knows. He says, when you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, that promised land, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, which is what we saw at the beginning of our series in 1 Samuel 8. God says, okay, when you say that, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. He says, I I get to choose who it is and what kind of a king it is. And he's going to give these three very explicit warnings here that this king should not be a taking king or an acquiring king. And so he lays out these, these three um, sort of parameters, and it is, it's almost comical the way that Solomon just blatantly violates each one of these three things. First of all, he says, don't take excessive horses. 
There's an excessive horse if you've ever seen one. Again, the millennials have no idea who Mr. Ed is, and that's, that's fine. Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So he says, don't get a bunch of horses. Now, let's fast forward to Solomon, 1 Kings 4, 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. Now, I'm not a horse guy. One seems like way too many for me. But I would imagine that 40,000 of anything falls under the excessive category. Is that fair? So, so here's Solomon with all these horses. And not only that, what does it say? Don't go to Egypt to acquire those horses. Okay, go back to 1 Kings chapter 10, 28. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. Like, Solomon, you're killing me, man. You're going exactly against what God had said not to do. Now, why did they want him to go back to Egypt? Well, Egypt was the land that they were rescued from, right? It symbolizes their bondage to sin and slavery. And, and God says, don't go back there. In the same way that we as believers, he says, don't return to your former life of slavery to sin. Why would you go back to slavery when you've been set free? But what we see from Solomon here in chapter 4, he actually starts to enlist forced labor, slavery. In chapter 12, it refers to him as a harsh taskmaster. What's happening? King Solomon of Israel is becoming like King Pharaoh. So horses? Eh. All right, law number two. It says, oh, there it is. Sol- yeah, Solomon's in, uh, Sol- it's Verse 17, don't take excessive wives. <laughs> Verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. What do we see in 1 Kings 11? A thousand times he puts a ring on it. That would be excessive. But it didn't start with a thousand. It started with one. In fact, before he even, he even asked God for that wisdom back in 1 Kings 3, look at what it says. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He marries his daughter. It always starts with one small step in the wrong direction. So we see, we see excessive horses, we see excessive uh, wives, and, and then the last one, excessive wealth. Don't take excessive wealth, you sh- nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Again, let's flash forward to Solomon, 1 Kings 10, 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. That's not a good number. And, and what is that in today's language? That'd be over $300 million of gold a year. And that's just the gold. He was, guy was probably raking in about a half a billion dollars all told. So that's excessive gold. But what about excessive silver? Verse 21, silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as a stone. The people are skipping silver on the lake. So, so do you see this? These are blatant violations of God's command here. Now, now you might say, well, didn't God promise Solomon wealth? Remember when God asked, he asked God for wisdom, and he goes, because you've asked well, not only am I going to give you the wisdom, but I'm also going to give you this wealth and honor. What did Jesus say? Money's not the problem. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And we see Solomon's heart start to shift toward his possessions. In fact, the, the, the temple he builds for God, it takes seven years, but then he takes almost twice as long to build his own place. The author has given us these breadcrumbs of the blatant violations against God's law that Solomon is committing. And those cracks lead us to chapter 11, where the house on the sand went splat. Now in Proverbs 18, 22, Solomon himself says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. But he who finds a thousand wives, that would be a bad thing. 
that is a thousand mother-in-laws, <laughs> right? Why is this man my foot, right? I guess I should be careful. I now have a mother-in-law, and in fact, she listens to these sermons on podcast form. Hi, Laura. Uh, you're a, a great mother-in-law. Let's move along. Um, three exchanges here in chapter 11. The first one is exchange love. Verse 1, Kings 11, 1 Kings 11. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. Why? For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. In fact, these are the people that they should have eliminated from the land in the first place, let alone marry into. Now, this is a contrast of his heart from back in 1 Kings 3, where it says Solomon loved the Lord. Same, same word there, Ahab. And what we see here, and you see the distinction, it says in, in verse 3, he had three, 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. A concubine was essentially, it's not just a prostitute, it was like a legal mistress, really almost like a, a female slave um, in an elevated status. They were different than wives. They had rights, but they were, they were different distinction legally. But this isn't just Solomon being a player. It's not just that he had a thing for the ladies and couldn't control himself. These were princesses. These are foreign women. This is, Solomon is playing a giant game of risk here. And really what he's doing is these these are all political moves where he's making allies and treaties with other nations. This was very commonplace at the time for kings. These were symbols of status and power and control. These were essentially political trophy wives and Solomon had a case full of them. In fact, the... But that's the problem here. It's not just that Solomon loved these women more than God. It's that Solomon loved power more than God. It's that Solomon was fearing these other nations more than fearing his God. It was that Solomon started to worship other things and gods other than the one true God. In fact, that's why God told them not to intermarry in the first place. Go back to that in Deuteronomy 17. He said, he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Why? Lest his heart turn away. And what did we just see in the first two verses? They turned his heart away. This is exactly what happened. And in verse 2, it says, he clung to these in love. Now, this word is very intentional here. The Hebrew, dabak, it means to cling to or hold fast to. And this would take them back to the first time this word is used in Genesis 2 when the origins of marriage are shown. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He shall cling to, cleave, leave and cleave. Now it says cling to his wife, not wives. Right? You can't cling to a thousand women. That, Solomon's wingspan was not that good. And what we're told here is it's between one man and one woman. And the Israelite king was to cling to one Israelite woman, not to a foreign woman. This isn't racism. This was spiritual. Because he knew that these foreign women from foreign nations would turn their heart away from the one true God. This is about fidelity. It's about fidelity in marriage. It's about fidelity with our Father God. And this is a direct contradiction in Solomon's heart toward the loving and clinging that he was called to his God alone. In fact, Deuteronomy 30, it uses these two words together. It says that we are called, he says, you should be loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, Shema, and holding fast to him. Why? For he is your life. There is one that we should ultimately love and cling to. And this is why that this is a, such a, marriage is such a clear picture of this. 
of the exclusive faithfulness and monogamy we are to have for another human and for our God. But he exchanges his love, and and as a result, he exchanges worship. Verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And just like he said, just like God said would happen, when he was old, his heart was turned away from his God. Now, this is not just, oh, Solomon was bowing to a, a piece of wood or something that's weird. When you understand the spiritual dilemma that this created, in the, the, the kind of idolatry, Ashtoreth was the goddess of fertility. This was, there were these pagan uh, rituals of worship that would go in these temples of unspeakable debauchery, things that I could not say in the pulpit right now. All sorts of perversion of the gift of sex that Solomon was clearly engaged in. And then Molech, he was a god to which they would, they would perform child sacrifices. I mean, you shudder to even think the thoughts of what Solomon would have been engaged in and endorsing here. Burning incense, praying prayers out loud to these gods at the altar of, of, of child sacrifice. And, and you have to ask the question, how did Solomon... F- fall this far. It's, it's almost unbelievable. But it always starts with a small step. Cracks in the foundation. When the rains come down and the floods come up, as the cracks continue to form, the house on the sand goes splat. And man, can't we so easily look around and go, how did I get here? I, I had said that I would never leave my spouse. I had said I would never become a drug addict, but it's a look here to taste here. Slow compromises with the world, and a thousand little baby steps off of true north find us lost and alone and doomed. And this is the power of lust. It, it, it captures us. It puts us in this spell, sort of this fog-like uh, space where slowly over time our conscience becomes seared, and we do things that we never thought we would do. Solomon's warning. Verse 4, and, and look at it, compares him to his father. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, uh, as was the heart of David his father. Verse 6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Now, if you remember the story, David had wives and concubines too. Not a thousand of them, but he walked that road. And we spent an entire month focusing on recounting the gross failures and sins in David's life. But the one thing that can be said about David that really can't be said about any of the other kings that would follow him was that he never worshipped another god. He was truly a man after God's own heart. And when he was confronted with his sin, what we see from David time and time again is that he repented and he came back to the true father, the lover of his soul. And what a reminder for us when we sin, not, not, not if we sin, but when we sin, if we repent and we return to our Father, he will always be there running to us with open arms to welcome the prodigal back home. And David's living proof of that. And what we don't see from Solomon here is when he's confronted, we don't see him repenting. 
And that's exactly what happens next. The exchanged love in his heart, the worship of his God, leads to exchanged outcomes in his kingdom. Look at God's response to Solomon. Starting in verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember in chapter 3, when he asks for wisdom, humbly receives it from the Lord. It says it, it pleased the Lord. But here, his proud taking and idolatry, it says it angers the Lord. And what I want us to hear here is not some distant God chucking lightning bolts, but a, the, the cry of a spurned lover who's been cheated on by his spouse a thousand times over. This is the rightful, jealous eye and love of a husband. As God comes to Solomon and says, what have you done? And in fact, it says he'd appeared to him twice. In 1 Kings 3 and 1 Kings 9, God personally comes and speaks to Solomon, clearly outlining the way forward. Verse 10, and had commanded him concerning the thing that he should not go after gods, other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. And because of that, this is what God says, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servants. He says, I made a covenant with you and your father. If you would shema, if you would listen and obey me, I would give you this position as king. But because you've disobeyed, I'm going to take. I'm going to take away your kingdom. And yet right away we see the mercy of God and the faithfulness to his promises. Yet, verse 12, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, Solomon will die king, but it's going to be Rehoboam that we see this thing happening. Verse 13, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom. So even all the kingdom's not going to get taken away from Rehoboam, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So what happens, he says here, I'm going to keep one tribe in the hands of your son. We see going forward for the rest of the kings that there becomes two kingdoms, the northern tribes, the ten tribes of Israel, and the two southern tribes. It says, one tribe here really ends up being Judah and Benjamin in the southern tribes um, that stay intact. And it's through these southern tribes that God remains faithful to his promise, not because Solomon earned it, not because David earned it, but because of God's faithful promise that goes all the way back to the garden. He says, I'm going to preserve this line, and from this small little kingdom of Judah will come the Lion of Judah, the one true king. Solomon had been the king that everyone had been waiting for. This wise, just king bringing peace to the land, glory, heaven on earth, right? We're here, we're back in Eden. But he couldn't even maintain that status through one full kingship. Shows us the deep, insidious nature of sin. So, I mean, what happened here? What happened? Solomon started out so humble, asking God for wisdom to shema, listen and obey God's voice. But through the very elevated status and power and wealth that God had given him, Solomon got comfortable and he stopped listening by faith and he started looking around at his kingdom and going, I am the man. And his pride took over and he started to shema, to listen and obey himself instead of his God. He goes, thanks for the wisdom, God. Thanks for the wealth. Thanks for the power. I got it from here. I got it from here. And he starts running after the gifts instead of the giver. And isn't it so easy in our country to become tranquilized by our own comforts and securities? Thanks, God, I got it. We live in a place of prosperity, 
where most of us don't have to wake up in the morning wondering if we'll have food on our table. We don't, we don't have to really live in deep fear of if we'll be persecuted for what we're doing right here, right now. That is the exception in, in Christian history. And so what can happen is we start resting on our laurels and we start getting caught up in our own comforts and securities that God gave us. And like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, we start chasing the wind. And we start trying to build our lives on false foundations. And like Solomon, it just becomes one more bar of gold, one more wife, and we're chasing the wind. The foolish king built his house on the sand of self and pride. What he, in Proverbs 3, 7, it says, Do not become wise in your own eyes. That's exactly what Solomon's doing. And he's the one that wrote that, right? Hashtag practice what you preach. What we see is as he builds the house on the sands of self and pride, as the rains come down and the floods come up, the house on the sand goes splat. Why? Well, we're already told why, right? We'll go back to Matthew chapter 7. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat on the house, and the great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of Solomon. Why? Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not obey them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. Solomon stops listening to and obeying the voice of God, and it turns his heart away. So what lessons can we draw? What are the lessons from Solomon's folly? Get it? Folly? It's a wordplay. Okay, uh, verse one, or, or number one, who you surround yourself with matters. Who, who you surround yourself with matters. Um, Solomon's uh, surrounding himself with the wrong kind of women led to the wrong kind of worship. As a kid, I surrounded myself with a few of the wrong kind of friends who introduced me to pornography. Did it turn my heart away? Start, started with a few pictures, a few innocent things here and there, innocent things. And before long, 20 years of bondage are introduced. Things that could have ruined my ministry. We see that happen all the time with pastors. Things that could have prevented or ruined my marriage. And in God's grace, as I grew older, he surrounded me with the right kind of friends to whom I was able to come to, to confess, to find accountability, to find encouragement from, to find mentorship and discipleship through. And Jesus freed me. And he gave me these beautiful gifts of pastoring this flock. Of a marriage to Jill. And to be able to worship him. Now, who are you surrounding yourself with? Do you have people in your life who are there to pick you up when you fall down and to confront you when you're up on your high horse. We, we have to have these kind of people in our lives. This is the gospel. This is the body of Christ. This is his presence with skin on it. But ultimately, there is only one relationship that we can build our life on as the foundation of everything that we do. Number two, what foundation you build on matters. What foundation you build on matters. Solomon's story, it sets us up to go, here's the guy, we're back to Eden right? But then what immediately happens, what a major disappointment that this Solomon is. He is not the guy. But Solomon's story is an image. It points us forward to the seed of the woman from the bosom of Abraham, from the line of King David, Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, he goes, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
See, Jesus himself knew that Solomon was an image, a pointer toward the true king that would come. Solomon abandons the God that he once loved. He violates the covenant of his father, and he clings to other lovers. When Jesus comes, he's the only king who was faithful to his father, loving him and us to the very end, even to death on a cross. As he bore the shame and sin of foolish Solomon, foolish Justin, each of us in this room. See, like every other king, every other human, Solomon fails. And I love the words of David Guzik. He says it this way, if this was the case with the wisest man who ever lived, he, he was way wiser than any of us. He had more resources than any of us. So if Solomon failed, he says, then what hope do you have apart from constant dependence upon Jesus Christ? Let the example of Solomon drive you to greater dependence and abiding with Jesus. So what foundation is your house built on? Doesn't matter how beautiful it might look. What foundation is it on? That's what matters. Who do you ultimately love and cling to? And Paul said, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus is the only shot we have in not getting eaten alive by the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of flesh, and the pride of life. Back in Deuteronomy 17, the king was given this mandate. He said, here's the things that you're not, don't take horses, don't take too many wives, don't take too much wealth, but here's what you want to do. If you want to be the right kind of king, and listen to these words, so relevant for us today. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. As he's sitting on his throne looking around, instead of, become, instead of looking at, man, I am the man, just keep a copy of God's word right there with you. And it shall be with him right there by his side, and he shall read it in all the days of his life. Every day, look at, read this, listen to it, obey it. That Why? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God, worship him alone by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. To Shema, listen and obey. Why? That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he would not become wise in his own eyes, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. How does the king stay on the right course? To stay in God's word. Know and trust his heart. Obey his word and cling to a relationship with the king, for he is your life. This isn't exactly what Jesus said back in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, that's where the firm foundation is. As a disciple of Jesus, we are called to learn and obey, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you, to love and cling to Jesus alone, to keep his word right there by our side, in it every day, and surrounded with relationships of people who will point us back to the gospel. And what's the result? When the rain falls and the floods come and the wind beats against your house, because let me tell you, it's, it's happening. The winds and floods of the trials and sufferings and things that we face inside and out of our lives will come. And how does the house stand firm? Hearing and obeying, clinging to Jesus. That's how the house on the rock stands firm. Father, we know, I see in my own heart, all the ways 
that I've loved and clinged, clung to other things, that I've become wise in my own eyes, that the comforts and securities of my life, I can easily start to say, I got this. In these small little steps, I start moving in the wrong direction, building my house in the sand. And Father, I know there are brothers and sisters in this room who are doing the same thing. Various stages in this room, it's going to look different ways. There's one ultimate problem, there's one ultimate solution. There's one name who's worthy of all of the breath of our lungs. There's one name above every name that we should be praising, but Father, we don't. That was the problem. None of us can listen and obey to these commands. So, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place and to raise to a new life, a new life that can, that can live in us so that we can listen and obey you once again to build on his foundation a house that will stand firm. Lord, may we build our houses on the rock that is Jesus, the, the, the rock that is your love, so we get to know your heart, to believe it, and walk in that direction. Maybe there's some people in this room today that need to start making some different friendships. You called us to be salt and light into the world, but who's influencing who? Do we have a home base of brothers and sisters who are faithful to confront, to speak the truth in love, gently and humbly? Point us to Jesus. Father, may we be willing to make the kind of changes we need to make so that we will not turn our hearts away and love and cling to other things. We build our life upon this one sure foundation. It's in the wise, strong, rock-solid name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.